This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 14. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should be go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor and the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. So 
the details of the Battle of Thermopylae have been greatly exaggerated. I know probably every dude in this room has seen the movie 300, where King Leonidas and 300 Spartans faced down the Persian army. Well, in history, it was more like 7,000 against probably 150 or 200,000, so pretty big difference in numbers. But here's what, the, what, all, what all the stories, even the exaggerations get true. That there was a particular king in Greece who believed that there was something so valuable, so worthwhile, that he was willing to give his very life to guard it. And so he rallied 7,000 troops, 7,000 Greeks, to go and face down a far greater army because he recognized what was at stake. The very freedom of Greece was at stake. And he was willing to do whatever he could to defend the freedom of his friends and his family and his homeland. So in the book of Galatians, we read that there are attacks on the message of the gospel. There are attacks on the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. False teachers had entered into the church and they wanted to undermine not only the message of the gospel, but they were actually attacking the apostle Paul himself. They were trying to undermine his authority. And so in response to these attacks, to these threats, the Apostle Paul turns his face towards the battle and goes after these false teachers and begins to defend the gospel in these churches in the Roman province of Galatia. If you are a disciple of Jesus, make no mistake, you have been called to the battle. You have been called to defend and guard the gospel. First City Church, as a church that belongs to Jesus, we have been invited in, we've been called in to this battle to guard the gospel against those who would want to distort it and corrupt it. And as we talked about last week, this isn't because the gospel is weak and fragile and powerless No, rather, we know what's at stake. Like King Leonidas and those Greek warriors, we know what's at stake. We know that there are things that are so beautiful, so precious, so meaningful, that they're worth giving our all to guard. We recognize that the effect of false gospels is death and destruction. We recognize that the effect of false gospel is to make spiritually weak Christians and spiritually weak churches. We guard the gospel because we know what's at stake. We want people to know Jesus. We want to be transformed by the gospel ourselves. We want to see the power of God set people free from sin and find life and joy and peace in him. We want God to be glorified in our city, in our world. We guard the gospel because it's worth it. We guard the gospel because Jesus is worth it. And so from our passage this morning, I want to trace the contours of Paul's defense and guarding of the gospel in this uh, sort of biographical narrative that he gives for us. And then I want to draw some implications for you and I about what that means for us as we guard the gospel. And so there's three ideas from this passage that I want to get at. We guard the gospel first when we love the gospel. Second, when we unify around the gospel. And then third, when we defend the gospel. So let's jump into this text and look at these three aspects. So as I mentioned earlier, 
The false teachers that had entered into these churches were not just attacking the gospel message. They were actually going after the Apostle Paul. Because if you can discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message. And so in this section, Paul is actually going on a little bit of a self-defense move here by trying to answer the charges against his credibility. One of the things that they were saying was that Paul's teaching, the gospel he was proclaiming, was man-made. See, Paul wanted to please men, and so he was removing aspects of the true gospel. And and that Paul wasn't like the other apostles who had learned the gospel from Jesus himself. No, Paul had been taught by men, and then he was now corrupting the gospel. And so to this charge, Paul mounts a defense. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, this is what Paul writes. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul goes right after this charge of that he is a man pleaser. He's just distorting the gospel because he wants to please people. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Am I really trying to please men? Am I, am I serving men or am I serving Christ? Let me give you the answer straightforward. I'm serving Christ because if I was serving man, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be writing this letter. I wouldn't have given my life to proclaim the gospel if I were serving man. I'm serving Christ. And then he turns and says, also, the gospel that I received, I received from the Lord. In verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he, again, is speaking directly like, look, the gospel I proclaim to you is the gospel that I received from Jesus Christ directly. And then he launches into a brief sort of testimonial about how he was called into ministry and how that shows that he received this from Jesus. So moving into verses 13 and 14, he writes, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So Paul was the last person on the planet that would have followed Christ on his own. He was violently persecuting the church. He was trying to destroy the church. The word there is the same word that is used to lay siege to a city. Paul was laying siege to the church. He wanted to tear it down and destroy it completely. The last person on earth who would ever follow Jesus on his own. Paul was also the rock star of Judaism. Like he was, it says that he was advancing faster than many people his own age. So he was like the, the dude who goes from high school to the NBA when it came to Judaism. He's like the 21-year-old tech startup guy who's a millionaire in a year. He was very, very good at this law thing. So he's the last person on the planet that you would ever expect to preach a gospel of God's free grace. But out of that life of violent persecution and self-righteousness, God saves him. Paul writes in, beginning in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not, excuse me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul is saying, look, when I was a violent persecutor of the church, 
When I was a self-righteous social climber, God saved me. God came after me and redeemed me. So Paul had this very clear awareness in his soul of who he used to be and who God rescued him to be. You see, Paul thought at one time he was born to rise the ranks of Judaism and be this great teacher and make a name for himself within the Jewish religion. But then what he come to realize is that before he was even born, God had set him apart to go and preach the gospel to all the world and make Jesus famous. That reversal of Paul's life, he held out and said, look, God called me. God commissioned me because I wouldn't have done this on my own. There's no way I would have chosen this on my own if God had not come and saved me and rescued me. And the gospel message he proclaimed, that also came from God. The gospel that he was given did not come from other men. It came from Jesus directly. And he emphasizes this by talking about what he did after he became a Christian. So after God saves him, this is what he did. I did not immediately consult with anyone. This is in beginning in verse 16. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Why does Paul make such a big deal about the geography of his life right after he became a Christian? Well, it shows that the message of the gospel was not because he went and hung out with the other apostles. It's not because he went out and, and hung out with the churches around Jerusalem, who, the churches that the apostles had started and had discipled and had influenced no, it was three years before he even went and talked to any apostle. And in those three years, Jesus revealed the gospel to him. Jesus instructed him and taught him the true nature of the gospel. And after those three years, he goes and visits Peter. And he only does it for 15 days. Why the specific number of days? Because if you're going to be discipled by someone else to carry their message, you need more than 15 days. He's saying that was a very short time. I went in, checked in with Peter. We hung out, we talked, caught up. He realized that I'm not a freak anymore. And I was on my way. So all of this over and over to show, hey, just like the other apostles, just like the other apostles, I was taught this gospel directly from Jesus. And look, I didn't go to any of the other churches, but guess what? They heard what I was doing. They heard that I was taking the message and preaching it. I once was a violent persecutor, but now I'm glorifying God and preaching Jesus. And they were celebrating because of that. So this was an important point that Paul was making in this biographical info. He's highlighting the God-centered nature of the gospel he proclaims. He's saying, look, I wasn't taught this by a man. I didn't make this up myself. I didn't get this and start twisting it and turning it into something that I didn't receive in the first place. No, I received this from the Lord directly. And so what implications can we draw from this for, our, for ourselves? Well, first, 
Look, to guard the gospel well, we have to see it as God-given. You and I, we didn't learn the gospel directly from Jesus like the Apostle Paul. He was unique. That's why he was an apostle. But the message that you and I were taught, the message that you and I proclaim to others, the message that you and I live by is the same message. It is God-given. It's not our message. We didn't invent this. We didn't make this up. And so what that means is we don't get to tweak it. We don't get to dress it up in fine clothes and make it more presentable. We steward it. It's been given to us by God to go and proclaim And so we go and we teach it and proclaim it and we guard it because it isn't ours. It's been entrusted to us. It is God-given. Also, the God-centeredness of the gospel also leads us to glory in the God who gives us the gospel. Like Paul's testimony isn't just him trying to score some points in a debate. Paul's testimony is this declaration of the great mercy and grace of God to all sinners. Look, Paul was the last guy you ever thought would become a Christian. Like this might be stretching it a little bit, but this would be like us finding out Osama bin Laden became a Christian. Honestly, that probably isn't stretching it as much as Paul hated the church and the reputation that he had. And so Paul declaring this is saying, look, this is radical, I wasn't chasing after Christ. I was trying to tear down the church. I wasn't interested in God's grace. I was trying to earn favor with God and make a name for myself. Yet in the midst of that, God came and got me. His grace and his love and his mercy chased after me. And it had nothing to do with my performance. This is what drove Paul to guard the gospel The message of the gospel was not only true, it was beautiful to him. It captivated his heart. It grabbed his deepest affections. He saw God as glorious and awesome and worthy of all praise. Paul was passionate about guarding the gospel because he recognized false gospels rob God of his glory. They minimize God's goodness and his grace and his glory. And Paul would not let false gospels steal glory from God. And so it was love of God, love of Christ, love of the gospel that ultimately drew drew Paul to guard the gospel. And look, if you don't hear anything else this morning, what I say, hear this. If we are going to guard the gospel well, we must love the gospel. We must love Jesus, love God for what he has done See, so often, church, we struggle to properly guard the message of the gospel because our hearts aren't captivated by the glory and the grace and the love of God. I'm not talking about some intellectual exercise. I'm talking about guarding the gospel from a place where we have been transformed and the love of God has our hearts. If we do not see the gospel is precious, if our hearts are not captured, if our affections are not captured, then we're going to care a little. Like, look, if, you, if I hand you a bag of rocks and say, hey, can you guard this for me? Can you watch this for me? Well, what are you going to do with that bag of rocks? Well, maybe I'll, I'll just set it down in my garage or maybe I'll throw it in the backyard or put it on my porch. Why? It's a bag of rocks. 
If someone steals the bag of rocks, like I can go find some more rocks. You, you don't guard that with your all because it's of little value. If I hand you a bag of diamonds, watch these. What are you doing with those? Locking them away in a safe, putting them in a safety deposit box, getting your guns ready if someone comes after them. Why? Because they're precious. You see them as precious. You see them as valuable. Church, does the gospel have our heart that way? Do we see it as precious? Do we see it as valuable? Are our hearts moved by the glory and the grace of God towards us in Jesus Christ? Or have other gospels grabbed your affections? Have other gospels got your heart to where that's what matters most in your life? And so the gospels of success or the gospel of relationships or the gospel of wealth and money or the gospel of a good family, well, you'll guard those. You'll give your art to, all to guard those because you think that's your hope. But does the gospel have your heart? Or are you listening to false gospels? when they tell you, no, those things are more important. Or maybe you're listening to the false gospel that tells you, hey, you're, you're really, you're okay. Like you're, you're doing your best and, and you're largely a good person. And so Jesus is just kind of fire insurance at the end of your life. If that's the case, are you ever going to guard the gospel? No, because Jesus isn't going to have center in your heart. Or maybe you're, you're listening to the false gospel of there's no hope for you. Maybe what's in front of you is your sin. And, and you're so broken and you just see mess. And so you're like, there's no way God loves me. There's no way that Christ could save me. And so the gospel seems very small to you, powerless to you. And so you give little to no thought of ever guarding it or defending it. Look, wherever you may find your heart, for, for you who are in Christ, can I, can I remind you of the gospel? Just take a moment and just refresh you. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were a hot mess and making a wreck of your life, before you did anything, Jesus died for you. And that wasn't because you were good enough. It's not because you, you did just enough little good. So like, oh, that's just enough. Now let me go save that person. No, it's purely the grace and love of God. He saved you. He rescued you. His grace and his mercy went to the darkest pit of your sin to redeem you. He broke the power of sin in your life. He has given you his spirit and he's renewing you. Look, success did not do that. Money and wealth did not do that. Sex cannot do that. Relationships cannot do that. A perfect marriage cannot do that. Being a great parent cannot do that. Only Jesus can save you. That's the gospel that came after you. That's who our God is. God has saved you. God has redeemed you. Whether you were sinfully indulging or whether you were a self-righteous wreck like the Apostle Paul. To guard the gospel, we must first love the gospel. And, and let me just add this as a question. For those of you here this morning that, that wouldn't profess faith in Christ, look, we're all following some message of good news. We all believe that there is something out there that is going to bring peace and joy to us, something that we believe is going to fix what's broken and make life better. 
What are those gospels for you? What are those messages of good news that you've put your hope in? And I wonder, does it make your heart sing? Is it worth guarding? Is it worth defending? Is it going to last forever? God holds out something far greater in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To guard the gospel, we must first love the gospel. But also, we need to unify around the gospel. We need to make sure that we do not compromise on the message and make sure that the gospel is the thing that unites us. So in chapter 2, Paul recounts a trip to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles to discuss the issue of whether or not circumcision was necessary for salvation. Why is this the issue at hand? What's so special about circumcision? Well, within the Old Testament, what we see is that circumcision was a part of the law that God gave to the people of Israel. It was a sign of the covenant God made with Israel. And so for people to follow the Lord and come underneath the law, they were circumcised. And what the Jewish leaders at the time taught was that salvation only came by keeping the law. So if you were a non-Jewish person and you wanted to experience salvation, if you wanted to be part of the people of God, well, you had to be circumcised and you had to come under this law. And so there were people in the church that said, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you still have to keep the law. And so if you are a Gentile, believe in Jesus, but you also have to become a Jew. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. And what the Apostle Paul and the other apostles said was no. What the gospel proclaims is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. No keeping the law, no circumcision. Gentiles don't need to become Jews. At the same time, Jewish believers could still embrace their culture and still embrace these religious practices as long as they didn't see it as what saves them. Gentiles did not need to become Jews. And Jews, your cultural practices, your religious practices aren't what save you. And so then in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Paul shows that there was great unity among the apostles in this message. So the false teachers were trying to say, well, Peter and James and John, those apostles, they taught Jesus and you have to keep the law, but Paul is doing something else. And then Paul points out, no, this is not the case. So in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what Paul says is, I went up because of this revelation that I have, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And I present that to the other apostles. And Titus, who was a Greek, who was with me, they did not make him be circumcised. What what does that show? Well, look, under Jewish law, Jews and Gentiles could not associate with one another. They could not call each other brothers and sisters. And the fact that Titus, being a Greek, had not been circumcised, and yet they welcomed him in as a brother, showed, look, doesn't need to be circumcised. Paul's point, everybody agrees what the gospel means among the apostles. Perfect unity. So for these false teachers to come in and say, Paul's preaching a different gospel, that they believe something else in Jerusalem was false. And Titus is living proof of that. 
unity around the gospel. Then in verse six, Paul says, look, they didn't even add anything to my message. They they didn't say that I needed to tweak anything or amend anything. No, perfect unity. Rather than correcting or, or saying that I was preaching something wrong, this is what he says in verses seven through nine. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So he's saying, I go to the Gentiles, Peter goes to the Jews. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. Same ministry, same gospel, just going to two different groups. When they saw that there was the same grace, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The right hand of fellowship saying, go brother, we bless your ministry. We're in, we're in complete unity. We agree. Paul's emphasizing that the message of the gospel united the apostles. They were in sync, even though they were going to different people. And even though the ways that they would talk about the gospel might have been different, not, not in the core message, but just in the way that they talked about it, even though that the Gentiles and the Jews were going to culturally practice things differently, it was the same gospel. Unity was important to Paul. In fact, unity was part of his motivation to go to Jerusalem. Back in verse 2, when it says he went to Jerusalem in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What does he mean by that? Does he mean he was unsure of the gospel? No, he was confident in the gospel. What it was is he was making sure that it was very clear that his proclamation to the gospel to the Gentiles, he was saying, look, I'm not undermining the law. I'm not speaking ill of the law. I'm not trying to spit on my cultural heritage. He's saying, look, I'm in unity with you guys. He went back because unity is important. Like if we are going to guard the gospel well, we must be unified as a church. We must be unified around what the gospel message is, but we must be one. Like, look, when Leonidas was going to fight the Persian army, he recognized, hey, the only way we have a chance is if Greece is united. Like, it reminds me of that, that scene in Braveheart where William Wallace is like, unite the clans to Robert the Bruce. You guys, come on, Braveheart, right? What was he saying? He's like, look, the only way we're going to defeat the English is if we're united. Unity is so important. Paul went to Jerusalem to make sure he was unified. Paul cared deeply about this, but he also recognized that it is only the gospel that unites us. It's only the gospel that can truly create this community that allows us to move towards each other in deep, genuine relationship, even when there's differences among us. And so the way the New Testament talks about this, like, look, one eats certain foods and another doesn't. A Jewish believer is circumcised to reflect their cultural heritage and a Gentile isn't. Like for us, one homeschools, another doesn't. One is a helicopter parent, one is a free-range parent. <laughs> one baptizes their kids at infancy, one waits until there's a profession of faith. One believes that there is speaking in tongues still, another doesn't. One dances in the aisles during worship, the other stands still. One votes Republican, another votes Democrat. <laughs> Because it is the gospel that saves us, 
It is the gospel that we're unified around. There's wonderful freedom in Christ. There's wonderful space for difference in Christ. And we hold this up. This is important for us. Because, and we talk about this a lot, I know, but it it just, we have to come back to this because this is going to be something that is always going to be a pull for us. Like, look, we're so prone to unify around other things. We're, We're so prone to unify around things like schooling preference or parenting preference or stage of life or secondary theological issues. And and then also we're susceptible to listen to messages that say those are the most important things. Like I'm not saying those things aren't important and there's good space for discussion, but when we listen to messages that say, no, you should unite around that, what we're doing is we're functionally saying the gospel is less important. And if the gospel is less important, guess what we're going to do? We're going to put it in the corner and we're not going to guard it. We're not going to cherish it. We're not going to let its power transform us. No, we're going to hold other things in front and we'll guard those things. All the while, the gospel is back here, and we're doing damage and violence to it. That is what false teachers want. Look, that is what false teachers want. They don't necessarily always come headstrong right at the message of the gospel. What they'll do is they'll try to get us to see other things as more important. To to take our eyes off the bright, shining star of the gospel. And our unity is built around something else. But, church... When we believe that only Jesus, only the gospel is strong enough and powerful enough and good enough and glorious enough to be the thing that unifies us, the only thing that is good enough and strong enough and glorious enough to define us as a community, then we're going to take care not to let false teachers corrupt the gospel. We're going to take care to not let other issues be the thing that we unify around. We guard the gospel by unifying around the gospel. And church, let me encourage you. Like, I'm so thankful for the unity that is in this church. And I'm so thankful for the diversity that is in this church. But we have to be diligent. We we have to keep working and fighting for that. We have to keep holding the gospel up in front of each other as a thing we unify around. Like, look, there's some really easy ways that we could just smash diversity. Just get rid of the tension. But by God's grace, we believe that if we hold up the gospel and unify around the gospel, there's wonderful space for diversity here. And let's celebrate that. Let us guard the gospel by unifying around the gospel. Finally, we guard the gospel by defending the gospel. At times, we will need to directly confront false teaching. At times, we will need to be direct. We will need to be confrontational. In Jerusalem, Paul was not only there to build unity with the other apostles, but he stood down false teachers. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul was all about talking about freedom. Hey, we can talk about freedom until we're blue in the face. But if anybody wants to distort the message of the gospel, he had no time for it. Didn't submit even for a moment, didn't yield an inch to the message of the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he wouldn't submit even for a second about the implication of that. That we are not saved, we are not in God's good graces because of our religious performance. 
Paul stood strong because he was not going to let false brothers enslave his brothers and sisters in Christ. He wasn't going to let false teachers enslave the church because make no mistake, that is what false teachers want to do. Enslave you. They want to enslave you to false gospels. And look, some false gospels enslave you by adding. Some false gospels will enslave you by subtracting from the gospel. Some false gospels say, Jesus plus do all of these things. And what does that do? It enslaves you to performance. And some false gospels will say, hey, look, faith in Christ, all it means is this. Pray this particular prayer and say you're sorry. Don't worry about submitting your life to Jesus and and confessing him as Lord. And so it's subtracting what faith means. Look, that's not faith in Jesus. That's using Jesus as a get out of jail free card. And so what does that do? It enslaves us further to our sin and our selfishness. And Paul confronted false teachers. Paul cared deeply about the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. And notice where this teaching comes from. False brothers who had slipped in, in the church. This is a scary reality, but it's, and it's sobering, but it is real. There are going to be false brothers and false sisters, people who play the part, that come into churches and start sowing the seeds of false gospels. And when that happens, we have to confront it. But we cannot yield even for an inch. We have to confront, we have to be direct, but also we do this by continually preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, discipling one another in the gospel, cherishing the gospel, loving the gospel, being unified around the gospel, not giving space for that false teaching to grow. Church, like King Leonidas and the Greeks, let's be freedom fighters. Let's be gospel freedom fighters. Let's care deeply about our, each other and not to be enslaved to false gospels. Let's defend the message, but then let's defend each other's freedom. Not only will we have to confront false teachers, but sometimes we're going to have to confront each other. Sometimes the way that we live our lives is going to be out of step with the truth of the gospel, and we will need to confront each other. Paul had to confront Peter, one of the original 12, in verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we're going to talk more about this passage next week, but essentially here's what happens. Because Peter feared a particular group of Jews that had come from Jerusalem, he stopped eating with Gentiles. Before, he was living in his freedom in Christ and hanging out with Gentiles. They came, he drew back, and here's what it communicated. Jesus plus keeping the law is what's true. Peter knew full well that wasn't true. Look, Peter received a revelation of the same thing from Jesus. If you read that in Acts chapter 10, Peter was at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 where they made it very clear, Jews do not have to be circumcised. Peter knew this. This was his theological belief. But yet the way he lived out of fear communicated something else. 
And so look, you and I, we can affirm the gospel. We can genuinely believe the gospel, but sometimes our lives will not be in step with the truth of the gospel. And Peter was leading even Barnabas astray. And that's the danger. When you and I do this, we start to lead each other astray. The the way that we can live our lives can show that, hey, there's a different gospel that I believe. There's a different gospel that's more important to me. And then other people start seeing that and they're caught up in that. Paul confronted Peter because his life was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that was damaging not only to Peter, but the rest of the church. Friends, brothers and sisters, at times we will need to confront one another. Oh, let's do this in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of love. But let's not be afraid to do this. Let us not be afraid to enter in and say, hey, look, the way you're living your life is not in step with the truth of the gospel. The way you are living your life shows that you're chasing after a false gospel. You're letting a false gospel occupy a place in your heart and control the way you live. Come back to the freedom in Christ. Church, can we commit to defending the gospel by confronting one another when our lives are not in step? Can we love one another in that way? Can we make the gospel beautiful? Can can we guard against the the, the false teaching that can kind of come in and we can functionally believe by catching one another and loving one another in this way? We guard the gospel by defending the gospel. So history tells us that Leonidas and the Greeks at their last stand at Thermopylae, they lost. They held this army off for a week, but they lost. In church, sometimes it can feel like the pressure and the opposition are so strong that it's going to win. And it can be tiring. And sometimes it can just cause us to want to retreat and forget about it. But here's our hope. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Our efforts at guarding the gospel are going to lead to victory. We have hope because the gospel is more powerful than any false teaching. It's more powerful than any sin that someone else or ourselves bring to the table. We have great hope when we guard the gospel because the gospel is the power of salvation. And so church, let's commit to guarding the gospel And as we do that, let's commit to taking the gospel into our world. Amen.